Bonjour and welcome to Being Métis, a search for identity through history and politics. I'm Barney Marais and this is episode 3, Where Do We Come From? Now that I've clarified I'm Métis from Red River, I want to know what kind of history does that carry along with it? My great-grandmother hid her Métis heritage. What happened to our ancestors in that area before that? There's lots of big stories that have happened on these lands that we don't always hear about and I want to share them with you. Broad strokes for now. With a surge in Métis self-identification, Canadians now more than ever need to hear these stories. Why were these mixed-race people different than others that define themselves as Métis today? With the help of a Métis historian, I want to explore the origins of the Métis people to give you the tools to properly understand the famous Louis Uriel Heyday. I think today's discussions will help better explain the modern-day land claims with the Manitoba Métis Federation. It's all connected, and for me, it kind of seems like a cycle. Don't worry, we'll have some fun music to keep it all light. In this episode, we feature two songs from Daniel Pelican Hoffner of Winnipeg folk trio Red Moon Road. We'll hear a song he wrote that brings us back to the olden days, and he'll help us close off the show with a brand new tune of his with lyrics by Louis Riel. Yeah, you heard that. But let's not put the ox before the cart. We have some stories to hear. All that and just next bit plus on this, the third episode of Being Métis. This episode is coming from a wood-burning yurt next to the Masqua River near Pine Falls, Manitoba. Fun fact, this is where I dreamt up of this project and it just so happens to be the site of the first place I heard our theme music from Gérald Darache. It's a great way to get away from civilization and be one with a wood stove. This will give us time to explore the origins of the Métis. The origins of the Métis are quite closely tied to the origins of Canada. Louis Riel fought the Dominion of Canada to protect Métis land. Well, that eventually formed Manitoba. But even a hundred years before Uncle Louis, not long after the first fur traders came west, the Métis started to have an impact as a collective on the land surrounding the Red and Assiniboine rivers, which is modern-day Winnipeg. To properly understand the not-so-talked-about Métis history, we need a sped-up version of how Canada started in order to understand where the Métis fit in. Ready? In the 1300s, the Vikings came over. Cool. Then, 300 years later, some French explorers came to fish and then eventually realized bringing furs back to Europe was more profitable than just fish. They venture inland eventually claim much of the eastern and central Canada forming their own territory called La Nouvelle France or New France. There's a map on beingmetis.ca. I uploaded it for you. In 1700s, a group of Scotsmen in Montreal area started a fur company called the Northwest Company that employed Irish, Scottish, and a majority of French settlers. They bring fur trades back to Europe to sell for clothing. Woohoo! Vive la France, I guess, right? Until a famous pair of fur traders, Pierre Radisson and Médard Chouard de Grosaillet, had enough with the French rule in the area and went to see King Charles II of England to get support to start the Hudson's Bay Company, or the HBC. Oh, so high on his throne, all the way in England, the king granted his cousin Rupert and the HBC control of all the lands that which their waterways empty into the Hudson's Bay. Why is that so important for us to realize? If you picture a modern day map of Canada, 
The gift from King Charles allowed English traders to trade fur on all of Quebec's eastern coast, the northern coast of all of Ontario, and a piece of northwestern Manitoba. In essence, a big chunk of eastern Canada. Again, there's a map on our website, beingmetis.ca. They built large factories on the water entries into the bay and would have indigenous traders bring their trade goods to those factories. As opposed to the Northwest Company's style of business, which was to build forts along the Great Lakes and canoe routes and would have clerks meet them and the tribes personally. Then send voyageurs back to Montreal with the good. This style led to closer ties with the indigenous people. In this time period, the Northwest Company is going to where the indigenous people already traded. Upon the HB settling to its large gifted land, it didn't take long for the two companies to start a rivalry and for the HBC to start building its forts near its competitors' already established forts. Over their existence, the companies disputed for years over the land and trade partnerships from Montreal all the way to the Forks and Red River and beyond and these battles eventually came to greatly involve the Métis. Now, this is where it's important to take a tiny detour off the regular history route and focus on what's happening in the background of the fur trade battles and their stories. It's actually, it's why we're here. In the late 1700s, as a result of the fur trade relationships of European and indigenous people, a new kind of people were emerging. These people, the offspring of various European male fur traders and indigenous women of tribes such as the Ojibwe, Cree, Chippewan, and Salto. Small communities of Métis were starting to form in Minnesota and North Dakota, with little or no control from overarching governments. There was little towns, offshoots of the fur trade, operating themselves based on their everyone's needs. As the fur trade began to strengthen in the West, so did the communities of Métis right alongside it. Because of their parents' relationships, the Métis were basically born into the fur trade and the Métis would excel at trapping furs, guiding expeditions, and hunting bison. These skills would make them vital in the fur trade and therefore integral to the development towards the West. One of these places they predominantly settled was at the meetings of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. Ring any bells? Now it's called the Forks in present-day Winnipeg. This was a meeting ground for thousands of years for indigenous people. My Métis learning buddy and Métis historian Robert Gendron works for the Manitoba Museum and has studied the Métis presence leading up to Rio. I invited him over for tea to share some of his knowledge about the Métis origins at Red River. Métis were already kind of in Minnesota at that point and were coming into Red River. At the time, they're not really called, I mean, they don't call themselves Métis at the time. They're, they're, they are calling themselves les hommes libres or freemen. I mean, they self-identify, in the journals at least, self-identify as something other than Métis. But just so we have like an idea, they're, they're a group, these, these people who are, they're all in the Red River area, yeah, right? They, so, so before they have Red River lots, okay. they ha they're farming, so they're farming Grant? surpluses that they're then selling to the companies that are then going out. Like they are providing all of the food goods for all of the tripmen and all the voyageurs that are going to get furs out west. 
So we, yeah. without kind of that food economy depot or that economy, yeah. the fur trading companies couldn't go further west. They, it just wouldn't be possible. Wouldn't the Métis in this time see that there's probably authority coming from other places and try to actually control that? Well, I mean, the, the Hudson's Bay Company, right, after the, after the Northwest amalgamates with the Hudson's Bay Company, they start putting strict rules down. They, and they tried before, and they failed. Like, that's what the Battle of Seven Oaks was, right? So how that happened was the Pemmican Proclamation, where the HBC says nobody could trade or buy or sell or hunt with, without our permission. Obviously, Métis or... People who were already in the area were yeah. upset. Yeah, they say, no way, we're going to keep doing what we were doing before, right? Yeah. C'est hommes libres, free men, right? So they just keep going. And Hudson's Bay Company gets upset, and they start... I mean, the Métis burn down the houses from the Selkirk settlers, <laughs> right? Like, they, they said, nobody told us that you're sending 200 new people here. How are we going to prepare for the winter? How are we going to get things ready? Like, this is putting a strain on everyone in the area. So that would be the Métis' first act of resistance against colonialism, right? Outside powers trying to govern a people that are already well-established here. Yeah, they so resist that. Like, the Northwest Company was always on the sidelines, kind of being like, you know, the HPC is doing that. Are you going to do something about that? Oh, okay. Stuff like that, right? Yeah. But... I mean, the Northwest Company was still buying things from the Métis. So it's not like, like they were encouraging in an economic sense, right? We're going to buy the pemmican that you're making, and we're going to keep feeding the men that are going out to the West, right? Whereas the HBC were saying, no, no, no. You know, you, you can't sell us pemmican. You, you're going to go get pemmican. You're going to give it to us. We control it. Obviously, the Métis don't like that, <laughs> right? So they, that's why the Métis and the Northwest Company are like considered to be on, the, on one side. But really, if the Northwest Company would have done that to the Métis, the Métis would have resisted that as well. They would have said, you know what, you guys could leave, leave or <laughs> smarten up. They would have done the same stuff. The Métis were there as their own company. They, they, okay. were, they were there to also make money, right? Because they were free, but they gathered their resources together as a community, which is how they would later on be known as like a people. By 1815, the Selkirk settlers have failed attempts at expanding the Red River colony due to a lack of supplies and support from the Métis, whom already live in the area. So, in an attempt to save the people, the HBC governor declared the Pemmican Proclamation, which, like Robert explained, is the HBC banning the export of goods from the area, including the exports of the Métis, whom we all know are selling tons of pemmican to traveling voyageurs and neighboring communities. The Pemmican Proclamation really started to upset the Métis community's way of life. Most people who know this time period would lead right to the Battle of Seven Oaks, but the Métis were making deals with the Hudson's Bay Company before that. Well, after some neighborly disputes, they at least tried for peace. They tried to get along. And everybody says to say, you know, that's like the, the start of the Métis nation. But 
really there's all these events prior to that where Cuthbert Grant is leading a whole group of people and talking with different leaders representing different nations or different companies to try to solve this, right? You know, Chief Peguis is doing the same thing. With them, their economy here in Cuthbert Grant, knowing that they have something worthwhile, he, I didn't know they actually made a deal with... with yeah, it's very rarely talking about, but yeah, they, there's a, a little peace treaty made between Cuthbert Grant, Miles, and McDonald. They talk it out to make sure that the settlers in 1815 can kind of not be harassed, right? But like prior to that, so for like three years before 1815, the Selkirk settlers were harassed. Like Cuthbert Grant had set a harassment policy on those settlers to get them out because Miles McDonald wasn't talking to the Métis, mm. right? Uh, he, he wasn't. He was kind of just dealing with mostly Chief Peguis, Chief Wackadot a little bit, and a couple of other ones, right? So that's why Cuthbert Grant had grouped everybody up and set this policy of harassment out. To oust the Selkirk, because they were they were disturbing the food sources, they were disturbing the economic power, you know. But if, if they say they're not allowed to be harassed, are they still going to show up? Yeah, they're already showed up. Oh, Two hundred okay. settlers showed up when, and this time it's not just men like tradesmen. This is these are kids are there. These are whole families. So they set a treaty and they say, okay, we won't harass them. They can stay, but we have to figure something out. Like, they can't stay here forever unless we talk a solution yeah. out, right? So they, they make a peace treaty, and they take in all of these settlers. The Ojibwe, like Chief Pegasus people, go down to Pemina as well. Some Métis go down to Pemina as well. And, and whoever could stay in the colony with the Métis that are already living there or the Cree that are already living there, stay. But most of them have to come back down to Pemina, where there's enough food supplies to last for the winter for everybody. Métis leader Cuthbert Grant and Sato leader Chief Peguis, after some conflict, started supporting the newcoming HBC. So far as bringing them down to the Pemina Valley, where they could have more resources to share. They welcomed the settlers into their community, but that didn't last long. The Battle of Seven Oaks is usually amongst most people like uh, an agreed upon one of the most significant Métis things. So for someone who's never heard of the Battle of Seven Oaks, like quickly sum up what happened. I don't know exactly like what initially, I remember l'élément déclencheur, so to speak, but something with canoe brigades were being stolen from oh, I remember from that the Northwest story. Company yeah. and uh, the HBC kind of took it. And Northwest Company came to try to get it, and there was no sort of agreement. Nothing came out of it. So then Métis cavalry guys came in to try to be like, you can't steal, you can't steal people's stuff. Yeah. It's like simple as that. So they come with 21 people, like muskets and cavalry. And then the HBC, who don't have enough men, come out and try to kind of defend themselves i guess mitigate the situation so cuthbert grant came kind of as a police force so to speak right and then they tried to come and say no we're the authority here because they had been trying to do that for a number mm. of years already and i don't know most accounts will say that it is the the hbc men that first fired possibly by accident possibly a misfire but that led to 
you know, I don't know, a lot of times it's called a massacre or like a battle or a war. But it was like a skirmish. Super depends on your on your perspective. Yeah, <laughs> it was like a skirmish, right? There was like, what, maybe, you know, maximum 30 people involved in the whole thing. Well, when you like, look at, the, when you look at the, like the stats, when you have... Yeah. Like almost a hundred percent of the HBC guys gone, and yeah. zero of the Northwest Com- or the, the other guys. Yeah, it kind of seems. But like, like the, one the, was prepared and one was not. Yeah, the HBC guys are not. They're not cavalry. <laughs> like yeah, the Métis that came, these guys were cavalry. They're running bison on horses, and they're shooting bison on, on like they're, they're the best of the best on the prairies. Like, they're known to have been the best cavalry on the prairies for. 70 years right so yeah, so what did they the HBC win didn't even have horses <laughs> what did they win after the battle when they actually let's say win the battle of seven oaks what did they get after what did they want they want a peace treaty so miles mcdonald and cuthbert grant came to an agreement that the northwest company could continue to uh kind of be active right um, and that there wouldn't be any harassment between the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, and also that the Hudson's Bay Company wouldn't try to govern other people's affairs. So that was like kind of one of the biggest outcomes, and that was between Cuthbert Grant and Miles McDonald. But then there's all of these. There's still these settlers. There's still 200 settlers there with no solution for provisions for the next, and they're supposed to live there. This is supposed to be their home for the rest of their life. Yeah. So. And these are, these settlers are the ones that everyone always talks about as Winnipeg's. These are the people who eventually start Winnipeg, that's, right? That's usually what what the story is. That's the narrative. So uh, I guess there's discussion to say, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this situation where there's still 200 settlers? There's not enough food. We have to figure it out. We have to share. We have to dividend throughout the Assiniboia, right? Um, and so. Chief Peguis, he, I basically suggest to Miles McDonald that you get the person who sponsored these settlers to come here and make an agreement. And that's Lord Selkirk, so Thomas Douglas. And Thomas Douglas was, you know, in 18, I don't know, 11 or something or 10, he bought 51% of all the shares of the Hudson's Bay Company. So he became the kind of majority shareholder which is why he was able to buy a bunch of land in the Red River area so these settlers could come here. So he sent them. So Chief Pegwis says, okay, that guy needs to come here and make an agreement with everyone that's living here on how we're going to use the land and share the land. That's literally what it was. And Chief Pegwis with him was four other chiefs that requested Selkirk. During this time, Thomas Douglas, the 5th Earl of Selkirk, the guy known for sponsoring the immigration of settlers to the Red River area, and a majority stakeholder of the Hudson's Bay Company, well, he was all the way in Montreal. As we reflect on the efforts of Cuthbert Grant and Chief Pegwith put forth with dealing with the HBC's Mild McDonnell, and as we wait for Thomas Douglas to make his way from Montreal to the Red River Colony to make some peace, Let's have a listen to one-third of the Winnipeg folk trio Red Moon Road, a Métis from Saint-Rose-du-Lac, Daniel Pelequin-Hoffner. With his band, he wrote a song that paints a picture of the kind of lives led by Métis and fur trade explorers. Here, he is doing that song solo just for us. 
Later, he'll join us for a chat and one more song about Métis leaders. For now, here's Kalan Ufair. to come back and thank and chat with Dan in just a little bit but Rob still has some stories to share and Thomas Douglas is almost at the forks. Yeah, McDon- Alexander McDonnell, Miles yeah. McDonnell and um, and they're all waiting for the Earl of Selkirk, Thomas Douglas to show up. Yeah, for the so day. he shows up in yeah. 1817 and they basically they come out with an arrangement of some sort where the Selkirk settlers uh, can now establish a farming community or farm on either side of the Assiniboine River and Red River, um, extending two miles. Yeah, so the Forks is where this actual center point se- this treaty happens at the Forks. Yeah, and then they say two miles in every direction. 
from both of those rivers. Okay. So the Red River goes all the way down into, you know, Minnesota and yeah. kind of south Dakota. But it's Dakota. not two, mi- two miles, doesn't go anywhere. No, near. no, but on either side of the river. So the river goes all the way down oh. and you'll have two miles. Uh, so two not, miles. not two miles from the no, Forks, but no. two miles from the river. From is the rivers, yeah. That's a, big, that's a big deal. That's a lot of land. Yeah, but it's not, it, it's not a land transfer. It's not a land mm. property deal. It's not a real estate deal. It's like you're here. You're going to have to like participate in like the well-being of everybody here, right? Because we can't just keep giving you guys food or, and housing you. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do it yourself. So you guys could use these areas to do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And they come to kind of like that agreement. And then uh, one of the things that the, the five chiefs get in return for giving access to the Selkirk settlers to do this is 100 tobaccos, 100 pounds of tobacco every year. And, and Selkirk is supposed to come back every year to kind of renew that relationship, to talk it through again, because things change, right? So the idea is to have this kind of ongoing relationship and discuss how we're going to deal with it in the next year. And so it's renewed every year. We always think of this as like being, you know, the first kind of evolution of like the river lot system that the Métis oh, yeah. are so familiar with and famous for. Oh. Uh, but then um, Lord Selkirk dies of tuberculosis in 1821, which is when you see the merger of the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company. And that becomes in the, in the fur trade period a time of monopoly. So the HPC have no competition at that time. So they could concentrate their forces on governing rather than competing with another company and you start see, seeing Governor George Simpson come in. And that really changes everything uh, in the Red River because that guy is like an authoritarian dictator for the most part, and he changes lots of different policies. So he sets up a court, he sets up um, a police force, he sets up uh, um, taxing on, uh, on goods, right? So coming in and out of Assiniboia or the Red River colony. He starts taxing that and, that, and that really doesn't sit well with the people there because the HBC is a company. They're not, they're not a governing body, right? So it doesn't really sit well with the people and they, and they resist this for until, you know, 1870. So there's many, many cases where, you know, people living in that area fight the HBC in legal procedures, like in the courts, uh, sometimes in little skirmishes. Over the next few decades, the Métis were constantly on the defense. The Métis fought for their land and defended their bison hunting on numerous occasions. I couldn't fit in all of the Métis stories of fighting and partnering with neighbors. They are all important stories and worth exploring further, but I'm only here to give you the quick picture. For more stories, go to beingmétis.ca. There, you can listen to the story about the Métis men who lived with the families of the Dakota men they killed as part of a peace treaty between the two fighting peoples. There's many more fascinating stories like that on beingmétis.ca. Telling this history through the eyes of the Métis is important. We haven't been the ones sharing our stories, but this kind of storytelling allows us to see history from our ancestors' perspective. Our musical guest, Daniel Pelekenhofter, has done just that. He's revived an old poem written by Louis Riel and has turned it into a song. 
He says it feels good to breathe new life into his words. All right, I'm joined by Daniel Pelequin Hoffner of Red Moon Road and also of Saint Rose du Lac, I think, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, but uh, currently, right now, of of the studio, uh, you're a busy guy. You're going with your band tomorrow um, to 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 pimp out your band. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, to to different folk festivals. Um, but right now, I want to talk to you about uh, Métis life and your your sort of Métis upbringing. Um, first. With your Métis heritage, did you know it growing up? Did you know lots of it growing up? Excellent question. Mm -hmm. the, um, I, I can't say that we had a, a direct connection with it dans notre jeunesse. Simplement à cause que uh, ça n'existait pas trop trop dans notre quotidien. Uh, malgré le fait que notre mère nous disait toujours dans notre jeunesse, uh, es comme, oui, bien sûr, vous avez du sang. Uh, comme, ça, ça fait partie de votre culture, mais on n'a jamais trop, trop su qu'est-ce qui se passait. Um, mais on habitait à Saint-Rose-du-Lac aussi, puis ça c'était un peu la région um, de mes ancêtres, côté paternel. So all my dad's side were all like kind of German descendants and French descendants. They were like in the first couple generations. And they were around Saint-Rose-du-Lac? Yeah, c'est là qu'ils venaient, puis uh, ils avaient passé pas mal toute leur vie là, puis uh, c'était très européen. Okay. Leur style de vie, um, mais côté métis, ça vient de ma, le côté de ma mère. Oh, okay. Puis, uh, il faut que j'avoue que c'est encore un peu... Um, c'est pas comme si que le, le secret est complètement uh, sorti non plus. C'est pas à dire que c'était un, un, complètement un secret. Comme je disais tantôt, ma mère me disait toujours qu'on avait uh, ça dans notre sang, mais on n'avait pas trop, trop une connexion dans ce sens-là. On okay. habitait à Saint-Rose-du-Lac, puis la famille de ma mère habitait à Saint-Pierre-Joli. Okay. Mom always said that, yeah, you have Métis blood, but we just sort of, it, it didn't necessarily mean that much because it wasn't such a prominent, it wasn't so prominent in our community. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I can definitely relate to that, like where it's like you know about this word that you're attached to, like that's supposed to be a nationality, but you have no like attachment to it because there's nothing really going on in the community and there's no difference between you and somebody who, who doesn't identify as Métis, there's no difference a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'll admit that I have a pretty skewed uh, understanding of nationality also. I'd, I'd say in my youth, I wasn't necessarily a patriotic Canadian. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I just grew up so far in the bush that it wasn't, there was no like real flag waving ever. And like, okay. of course there were, you know, Canada Day celebrations and whatnot, but I never really felt a sense of patriotism in such a way, I guess. Okay. Uh, really coming of age in the age of the internet really allowed me to see a lot of outside perspectives and um, I never really felt like a nationality was a thing. We, we, we grew up by a river and I always wondered like, well, why aren't we all just organizing ourselves based on our watersheds? Like we have to deal with whatever's coming from upstream, right? And uh, so the town is upstream from us and so that they relate directly, we relate to them in that way and they relate to the people that are higher upstream also and so in my mind that was how people should be organized so to say that I was uh, craving a nationality in that sense was might not be exact nonetheless uh, I did understand that it was an important um, factor in many people's identity okay um, but I, I, I didn't crave it in that way I didn't seek like a, a, a sense of I didn't need a sense of belonging in such a way so I, I feel like I didn't I may have 
not reached out for it so hard as a result. But now, as an adult in living in in the world, you know, <laughs> you, you start to see how uh, power imbalances are, are really um, okay. really evident, you know, and how people who have uh, are a visible minority or, or uh, language minorities, there's they struggle. The struggle is is very directly related to their uh, their income and their socioeconomic status, and so thinking about it in such a in a, in a large scale way, um, I'm beginning to have more hunger for understanding of of the personal interaction that a person has with their nationality and and their past. I guess a long-winded way, essentially, of saying <laughs> that I am so curious right now. Yeah, but it didn't really. Uh, didn't grab my imagination in my youth. Okay, and so what? What are you sort of doing now? That's maybe moving towards more of a making Métis a part of your quotidien. Uh, and it can be a little or a lot, just whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah, imagine. totally. And interesting, because um, I just touched the. Ben, on s'est parlé en fait à la soirée sans fin, la célébration des 50 ans du sans nom. Puis c'est là que j'ai fait une performance d'une chanson qui a été écrite euh, apparemment par Louis quand il était en prison en Saskatchewan. Et puis j'ai trouvé les textes pour ça dans le petit livret que, que ma mère avait dans notre maison, dans notre jeunesse, s'appelait Chanson de chez nous. Everyone knew about that book. Right? Everyone knows that book. <laughs> ça a été imprimé dans les, comme la fin des années 80, 80 je pense. Yeah. Puis c'était propagé partout, dans toutes les écoles, dans toutes les... Yeah, comme tout le monde là à la maison. Yeah, when you, said, when you said, like, that little book that was in that little thing, someone in the audience, I think it was, like, Jean-Paul Coutier or whatever, right. whispered, whis like, yelled, or not whispered, yelled it out, like, before, like, you were, like, talking about it, and someone knew what that book was already before you said, because you were, like, you alluded to it, and you never actually said it. It's hilarious, everyone knew that book. But anyway, yeah. But there was that one, there was that Louis poem that no one ever read, right? Uh, or maybe they did, and it wasn't a part of our... Uh, our cultural sphere, you know. Puis j'ai trouvé ça tellement étrange, le fait que j'ai lu, puis j'ai chanté depuis ce livre, depuis que, depuis ma jeunesse, tu sais. Yeah. Comme je connais toutes les tonnes, je connais toutes les mélodies, mais c'est juste l'hiver passé que j'ai passé à travers, comme on voulait chanter des chansons euh, dans le temps de Noël. Okay. Moi, puis comme j'étais assis au piano, puis on avait chanté toutes les tonnes qu'on connaissait, c'est comme, allons voir c'est quoi les paroles pour toutes les tonnes qu'on connaît juste le petit refrain, tu sais. Okay. C'est qu'on a passé à travers, puis j'ai vu tous ces couplets, là, ensemble, avec le titre disant « Chanson de Louis Riel ». J'étais comme « Voyons, c'est pas vrai. C'est plus tu Comme je sais, là, tout le long, comment ça se fait qu'on n'en parle pas? Comment ça se fait qu'on la chante pas? Alors, moi, de ma part, ça m'a ça vraiment ému de lire des mots d'un homme qui a été en prison pour vraiment avoir donné un futur à un peuple. So, so is that what it took to get like the le comme ça a pris une chanson de Lou Riel pour prendre un, un musicien d'être intéressé dans les métisses, tu sais? <laughs> ouais, ouais, essentiellement. <laughs> ouais, j'avoue que oui. Yeah. Moi, ma tête, c'est toujours dans le macro et puis euh, un, un peu moins dans, dans les médias. Comme oh. euh, les médias, je veux dire, comme dans, dans l'entre-genre. Le, c'est oh. comme euh, quand je pense à des affaires, moi, je pense toujours comme qu'est-ce qui se passe au niveau fédéral. C'est comme tu, je pense toujours aux politiques, puis quand je ah. pense à Métis, comme, on dit comme c'est une grosse bagarre qui se font comme, depuis des années, des décennies. C'est comme c'est... Literally since the start of Canada. 
Yeah. Même before. <laughs> exactly. Which is insane. Yeah. Like, le, le plus que j'y pensais, comme c'était, je trouvais que c'était affreux, mais euh, il y avait toujours, euh, moi je vais aussi, comme qu'est-ce qui se passait en, en Bosnie, par exemple, tu sais, où il euh, y a bien mille et une choses qui se passent à chaque jour, partout à travers le monde. Et puis, it kind of weighed too heavy on me. You know, oh. just like to see like how everything, the world just sucks so bad. Like there's just terrible things happening everywhere. How can this happen? Why? You know, uh, but like you can only affect a small amount of change. But if a lot of people affect a small amount of change in its concentrated area, that's how real change occurs, right? Yeah. So like, I don't know, I guess that light kind of turned on for me to d'un coup, à cause que je passe ma vie dans la musique. Uh, et puis d'avoir un, un, un tel œuvre qui m'est parvenu, qui, qui existe déjà partout, dans les maisons à chaque francophone, <laughs> partout dans l'Ouest canadien. You're, you're literally just sparking up this thing. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it's there. Yeah. You know, everyone can just look in their book and see it. Oh, okay. Because, uh, yeah, because in that night, what I, what I was trying to say yeah. was that in that night, you, you took this brand new song that you've only played twice before, yeah. and you chose that as, like, your new feature. So I feel like it's, like... That was the pretty, like, I don't know if that was, in my mind, it seems like a ballsy call when you're, when you're trying to pick your selection to go. Oh, yeah, I was but terrified. <laughs> <laughs> like, because cause you, you've played it, did you practice it before this time at no. least? Still three times. You've, like, you've played this thing three times, that's yeah. it? That <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, let's hear it, and then can we talk about it some more? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. C'est au champ de bataille J'ai fait écrire douleur On couche sur la paille Ça fait frémir les cœurs Or je reçois une lettre De ma chère maman J'avais ni plume ni encre pour pouvoir lui écrire. Or je pris mon canif, je le trempis dans mon sang pour écrire un vieux lettre. À ma chère maman Quand elle recevra cette lettre Toute écrite de sang Ses yeux baignant de larmes Son cœur sera mourant Si j'étais genou par terre En appelant ses enfants Priez pour votre frère Qui est au régiment Mourir s'il faut mourir Chacun meurt à son tour J'aime mieux mourir en brave Faut tous mourir un jour 
Merci beaucoup, Daniel. Thanks a lot for that song. Let's talk about it now a little bit. If we yeah, can man. Unpack sure. it a little bit. The, the, the words are completely from Louis Riel and you just take them verbatim and you made a song out of it. Yeah, essentially. Um, I can't trace the words back directly to say that it was written by Louis Riel. Like, I don't have that paper trail. Like, I, can't, I can't provide yeah. evidence for it. Uh, aside from the evidence that does exist, puis c'est dans le livre même, ça dit que je l'ai suicide, je l'ai même pas suicide. D'habitude, je tiens ce livre-là avec moi depuis ce temps-là, de l'avoir en main en tout temps. Mais ça venu de Madame Cass Beggs, qui était à une école, qui l'a eu plutôt, d'un vieux métis de Lebray à Saskatchewan. Puis d'après lui ces mots ont été écrits par Louis Riel dans son temps en prison. So you don't know, but you're... I don't know, <laughs> but like, I read that in that book. I was like, if this is for real, this is monumental. <laughs> Alors... Yeah. Um, and, and so what does this song talk about? For someone who maybe didn't understand anything that was going on in this song. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, rough, roughly, it's um, a man who's in prison and he's, he's saying... Uh, that I'm in prison and I'm freezing cold and I'm sleeping on hay and this is my life now. Uh, I have nothing at all even to write to my mother uh, to like sort of back things up or, or to, to, to rather let her know that I'm, that I'm away in prison. And so he instead takes a knife to draw his own blood so that he can write a letter to his mother. And he imagines his mother receiving this letter written in blood and she falls through and he's praying and gathers the rest of her family around to say that, uh, to, to offer prayer in hopes that he'll survive or he'll be released. And in conclusion, at the, in the final stanza, the writer uh, says that we all have to die one day and it's, I find dignity uh, in, in dying for what I stand for. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's the Cole's notes of. It's intense. <laughs> it's super intense. Yeah. And like to read it deliberately, and because there's no melody associated. C'est un peu comme d'autres choses que qui m'a touché, c'était le fait que d'habitude avec une, une tune qu'on connaît comme V'là le bon vent, on, on la chante toujours, tu sais. Yeah. On pense presque pas à ce qui se passe dans les paroles à cause qu'on l'a appris dans notre jeunesse. Yeah. It's just like how how come I know so many like uh, serial slogans, you know? <laughs> Try spelling Vlaubon Van when someone like I remember when someone asked me the first time, like, what does Vlaubon Van mean? I don't I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just it's this thing that you sing. You yeah. Know? Uh, so same deal. Uh, you just sort of read through it and you sing it and you're like, hey, this is a fun time we're all having together. And like sometimes there's a story associated to it, but there's no melody. So I just read it as as though it were this man in prison. And I read it so slowly and deliberately, and it hit me in such a sense that I felt like I was there. Like I felt that suffering and loneliness. And I showed my mom afterwards. She's like, did you know this was in here? Puis comme, je sais pas, je l'ai jamais vu. So it just sort of stuck in my head forever. And I typed it out, like I wrote it out. And I typed it out also just to like internalize the, the lines in my head. And I had it just sort of floating around and I couldn't stop thinking about how lonely it must be 
in a prison cell in the 1800s. <laughs> you know, like how abysmal that, that must feel. So uh, I, I did, it's not so much a song as it is a soundscape. I was just gonna say like yeah like like the, the, I was gonna say the soundscape is so important to the whole thing like the atmosphere it sets to the atmosphere and sets the whole the whole rhythm of everything so yeah, it's like yeah. it is like it is like a poem with a soundscape around it more than a song yeah which is what a song is music theory yeah 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 exactly <laughs> there is a melody and there is rhythm so yeah. I guess and there are words so it is a song uh, but hey, we learned something today. All right. <laughs> uh, but in practically speaking, it's uh, yeah. I guess it is just sort of a, a spoken word piece almost. Yeah. With a you know like a rhythm and a melody, but it's sung into an acoustic instrument uh, through a delay pedal and a reverb pedal. So like these uh, electronic algorithms that allow for space and uh, and an echo, because I wanted the the, the voice. To bounce off a concrete wall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You hear that? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, so, it, it's like, it takes like a. I swear to God, it took a very spe special mix of a person to try to like, to, to first off care enough about including any matiness or anything in their own, you know, in their own life, and then finding a way to like use pedals and stuff like that in like the in the sort of beauty like a Gerard Lara would be where you, why, you find why, a little why, of, oui, yeah, of like a, a nature and sort of thing. So yeah. it's like. It's good that it happened naturally. I can't wait to see the, the development of this song. Maybe when you play it a fourth time, maybe you should record it or something again? Or? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> I will. And, uh, I can't decide if I wanted to like, find an actual prison to make, it, to make that recording. Do it in. You know? It might, go to it the might... RCMP detachment in St. Pierre and do it? No? Not good enough? <laughs> maybe we'll go down to Batoche. That would be intense. Well, that, that would be where the prison would where you would have been imprisoned, right? Yeah, I, I feel like it deserves that. I'll go on a road trip with you. I'll do it. I'll record You bring it. the recording gear, man. <laughs> we'll, uh, yeah, we'll film the whole thing. Yeah, cool. Uh, just before I let you go, I do want to talk a little bit about Calon Fire too. Just a little yeah, bit yeah. about some of the lyrics. Sure, man. Um, now I, I for, forget a lot of them, but that song you're saying it has a lot of connection to French roots, but also Métis roots sort of starting in the, you know, Winnipeg, Red, the River, Red River area. Valley. Yeah. yeah. And so what are some of those spots that you think are like the sort of Métis oriented stuff? Uh, the concept came to me when I was sitting at La Fourche, mm. puis je faisais face vers l'est, puis je voyais uh, la cathédrale qui était là, la basilique, et puis il y avait des gros, um, des gros nuages, petites dodues là, qui, qui flottaient par-dessus, puis je pensais un peu à l'idée le fait que cette église est là depuis tellement longtemps, puis c'était vraiment ça l'encre la pierre angulaire sur laquelle était fondée cette communauté. Right. I was like, damn, like, it's been there forever, you know? That's so, <laughs> that's so crazy. And without that sense of community, it might not have survived against the trials and tribulations. So, uh, la chanson comme telle uh, parle au sujet de deux différents um, troupeaux. Il y a un troupeau des, uh, des moutons. Puis les moutons, c'est comme les catholiques, you know, like the, the um, lamb of God. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. So c'est tout des catholiques and then uh, eux autres, ils, ils... Not because they're all sheep following the same thing. That's not what you're trying to say at all, right? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's religious uh, uh, imagery, right? Because when um, Jesus was uh, dividing the flocks, all the sheep went to the right-hand side and then to the left went the goats and they were off to hell. So like his flock ascended, you know, and, and all the others remained behind. So sheep were the Catholics and that's what they were following, right? 
Puis en plus, not to say that they're, they're following like sheep, but the fact that there's strength in the herd, they need each other, right? Without that, mm -hmm. uh, that community support, there's no way they could have survived alone in the wild. And it was ultimately still rather wild when they were first settling. So then uh, Le Chevrier is another character who comes into this song, and Le Chevrier is like a, a goat herder. Um, and so that's, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were coming in from the east, and they wanted to push the railroad through. Yeah. And so, um, uh, Le Monde en Carré, uh, is, there's a line that says, we, they, so these sheep herders, or the uh, goat herders came in and they took everything away and, uh, and changed the way, they divided everything into squares. So instead of seigneuries, like the way that we used to, we, I'm already appropriating <laughs> this <laughs> culture, you know, uh, uh, the way that um, land was divided was the f everyone had an equal access to water. Yeah, but a long track. Excuse, there's a, a random. It's like there's another signal coming somewhere or something. Okay, sorry, no. Okay, uh, so the long tracks of land. Uh, yeah, long tracks of land in the seigneuries, yeah. and then uh, the um, imperial system came by and they just uh, cut everything into square miles. Ultimately, so they redivided the land and just sort of kicked everyone off, and. In the end, there's, there's uh, the song talks about the difficulties that they had and how um, it was nearly impossible to stay together. But pendant des années, le troupeau est assoiffé, leur cri de bataille s'alucie. So for years and years, the um, the battle cry goes silent, and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's essentially like a, a call to arms. And there's un, un, enfin un berger mis son pied à terre avec un air droit et dédié. Un berger is like the man who herds sheep. Uh, il rassembla les troupeaux de ses frères et procéda justement à questionner. So he gathered together all of his, the, the herds of his brothers and went forth and justly asked, sans pâturage ni fontaine, qu'allons-nous faire? Without pasture land and without access to water, what are we going to do? Comment soigner les agneaux is how do we raise our children in the way that we were once raised? You know, so who is that that guy coming in is is that the Anglo-Saxon or is that Louis? That's Louis. Okay. So as the as the father of the Métis nation, he was the one who put his foot down in such a way that allowed for a resistance to succeed. And he it was really the strength in numbers. Also, it's like. Uh, gathering the, the the trust and confidence of his of his brethren. Cool. Well, you might be a special enough, Dan, that we might play two songs from you in this one. Because <laughs> <laughs> both songs relate really well. So uh, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a thing right now where I'm gonna say like like we're going. Dan, you're special enough. I think we're gonna play two of your songs. Let's hear Kalanufair too as well. Let's hear that recording. And then there's an actual recording of Great. it. Great. Dan, thanks so much for having me in the studio, sharing your stories with me. I actually super appreciate it. And uh, keep, My making pleasure, me, truly. Keep, keep making your good music. And uh, can't wait to see the fourth and fifth time you play. <laughs> yeah, songs. absolutely. Expect uh, <laughs> spirit to attend to other music francophone given to me as a result of these discoveries. So. Cool. Right on. Merci, man. Un grand plaisir. Thanks, Danielle, for the songs, Robert for the stories, and you for listening. I appreciate it. We'll have the full interviews with both these guys on our website, beingmetis.ca. 
There, you can also donate any amount you want to our Patreon drive. This project came out of the pocket of a broke student. If you learned anything, liked the interviews, or even discovered something about yourself, consider supporting this podcast. The more you donate, the more episodes we can make. In our next episode, we talk about Louis Riel and how he's been portrayed through time. Thanks for listening. A la prochaine.